Lately, it seems that we are getting more and more confused about what a church actually is. So let's take some time to set the record straight. Church is not a building, though a building can be used by a church. Church is not a denomination, though a set of beliefs should be important to a church. Church is not about Sunday, though a church should not forsake meeting together. Church is not about one person or personality, though every church should be pastored. And church is not about size or growth, though every church is called to make disciples. So don't think of church as an address or a location, but rather think of church as mobile and on the move. Don't think of church as something built or planted, but rather think of church as something deployed. Don't think of church as where you are for an hour each week, but rather what you are every day of the week, because the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Feet shouldn't sit still. Hands shouldn't be idle. Feet go. Hands do. This is the church. Church isn't what you're sitting through right now, because you are the church. Now go and be the church. Good morning, Freedom. I'm grateful that you are here worshiping with us and those of you that are joining us online. And my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here. And we are in this series called Upward, Inward, and Outward. And really what we're doing is we're defining who we are as a church. Freedom Bible Church exists to make disciples who love upward, inward, and outward. That's our mission statement. That's, that's why we exist. And that idea of making disciples who love upward, inward, and outward comes from two primary texts in the Bible. One is the Great Commission, where Jesus said to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's where we get the idea of making disciples. And making disciples who love upward, that's our love for God, who love inward, that's our love for ourselves, and who love outward, that's our love for our neighbors, comes from the great commandment. That is where Jesus was, was challenged by a Pharisee, and he said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. So this series of upward, inward, and outward is really a series about clarity. It's a series about understanding our identity as a church, understanding who we are as a church, getting clarity on our mission, getting clarity on what God's called us to do, getting clarity on the uniqueness of this fellowship, of this body of Christ, clarity about who we're called to, to be and what we're called to do. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of what the local church is all about. And keep in mind, this is a focus on the local church, not the big C church, but the local church. The big C church is all the followers of Jesus from the time Jesus was here on earth till the time he comes back. But what I'm talking about, what we're focusing on during this series is what is this local gathering? Because there are many, many, many local gatherings of the church that are meeting all over our city right now, all over our state, all over the world right now. And so what is the local church? Well, here's how I define the local church. The local church is a group of Christ followers who are committed, committed to gather regularly under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We gather for the purpose of prayer and worship and fellowship 
and teaching the Word of God. When we gather, we do so to affirm Christ's kingdom through baptism and communion. And when we gather, we do so to advance Christ's kingdom through evangelism and through generosity. And when we gather, we make a commitment to one another that we're going to make disciples of all people. That's a a big definition of the local church, but that is what the local church is all about. And that's what we talked about in week one. So if you missed that message, you can go back a couple of weeks and check that one out. Week two, last week, we talked about making disciples. That's what Christ has called us to do. He said to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we talked about making disciples, and we talked about the fact that being a disciple of Christ is not like graduate Christianity. It's not like you graduate to a point of being a disciple. No. You see, according to Jesus, being a disciple and being a Christian, being a follower of Christ are one and the same. You don't like move from being an unbeliever to a believer to a disciple to a disciple maker. No, that's the call of all of us. There's not a progression that we move toward, but yet we're all called disciples. So a disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Christ. A follower of Christ is a disciple. You get it? Good. We can move on. So we talked about that. And then we talked about some characteristics of what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who first and foremost identifies with the person of Christ. What does that mean? That means we love Christ. We know Christ. We worship Jesus. Our lives are devoted to Jesus. That's identifying with the person of Christ. But we also talked about the fact that that a disciple of Jesus is one that is obedient to the word of Christ. James said if if we just hear the word and don't do it, we deceive ourselves. So being a disciple of Christ means that we are obedient to what he says. If you go back to the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and teaching them to what? To know all the commands that I give you? Observe. Observe. To do them. To actually, actually put them into practice. He actually expects us to do what his word says. And so being a disciple means that we are obedient to the word of Christ. But not only that, being a disciple, a disciple means that we are fruitful in the work of Christ. What is the work of Christ? Making disciples. Pouring into the lives of other people. Helping unbelievers come to know Christ and helping other believers grow in Christ. That's the work. It's that simple. And we talked about last week that in order to do that, we have to learn to maximize where we live, work, and play as a platform for making disciples. That we have to be intentional in investing our lives into other people. Well, this week we're going to talk about loving upward. What does it mean for us to love upward? We're going to be looking at Matthew 22 in just a few moments. But what does it mean to love upward? Loving upward is loving God. That's our love for God. We first and foremost love God. You see, the central theme in all of Scripture is God's love for us and our love for Him in return because of His love for us. That's why John wrote in 1 John 4, 19, we love... Because, why? He first loved us. The reason you and I love to begin with is because God first loved us. Get this, without, with, without, his, without his working in our lives, we don't even have the capacity to love. John also says that God is love. You and I are created in God's image, which means that we are created to love. 
And so God created us in his image. He designed us in his image. He made us in his image. And in his image, we are to love first and foremost God and then love others. See, God's love for us is the entire message of the gospel, right? The church exists because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for us. Why did he do that? Because he loves us. It's, our, it's his love for us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Why? Because he loves us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Why? That's where we answer. Because he loves us. I've been giving you the answer the whole time. <laughs> no, we love because he first loved us. See, in the divine economy, God's love demands that we love him in return. God's, in God's economy, his love seeks a reply. And the way he wants us to do this, he wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in order that we can extend his love to others. Let's look at Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. And here's what the Word of God says. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34, it says this. But when the Pharisees, these are religious leaders, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. We're going to talk about what that means in just a few moments. But when, when Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So they, the Pharisees get, get together and start huddling up. And they say, let's talk about this. Let's figure out what's going on. And then one of them, a lawyer... Ask Jesus a question to do what? To test him. To test him. And here's what he said. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in, in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We're going to stop right there for today's teaching. We'll pick up on the rest, second half of, of this passage next week and what that means. But here's the setting. In Matthew 22, Jesus has been asked four different times by the religious leaders of Israel some very specific questions in order to trick him, in order to trap him, in order to catch him saying something wrong. And so they've, they've asked him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He says, well, love the Lord your God. That's the first and foremost what you're called to do. And so in this fourth question, what, what has happened up until this point, he had answered these questions so well that the Sadducees, which was one group of religious leaders, one group of, 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 of leaders in Israel, he had answered these questions so well that they said, you know what, we're done. We're tapping out. I ain't asking him no more questions. So then the Pharisees say, oh, we got a bright idea. Let's get together and now let's go ask him questions, which is probably not a good move, right? Because we're going to find out because Jesus has an answer. But so the Pharisees get together and they decide, let's, let's give it a go. Let's ask him. Let's, let's go for it. And so they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And this is not a new question. It's not a new question at all. In fact, they had been debating this question for centuries. The religious leaders had been debating, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law, in all the Old Testament? What is the greatest commandment? They've been debating this for centuries. Why? Because there's 613 Old Testament laws. There's no way that you can remember, yet even try to follow 613 laws, right? It's impossible. So what the religious leaders in Israel did, what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, what they would do is they would say, 
well, let's take the law and let's, let's divide it into important ones and unimportant ones. And they called them heavy laws and light laws, right? And so what they would do is they would debate which one should be a heavy law and which one should be a light law and which one is important and which one is unimportant. And the whole purpose was so that they could focus on the important laws, the most important ones, and then disregard the less ones, the, the unimportant ones, the light ones. That's why they did this. But the fallacy in this, in this process, the fallacy in this approach is obvious, isn't it? Because if you and I break one of God's laws, we are guilty before God. That's why James in James 2 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, whoever keeps all of it, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. See, the law was never intended to redeem us. The law was never intended to save us. We, we were never intended to be able to follow the law. What the law is intended to do for the nation of Israel and for us is to drive us to dependence upon God. To drive us to a Savior. To drive us not to try to, try to work our way into heaven, but to, to, but to rest in the provision that God has made in order to redeem us. That's what the purpose of the law was. And so the, the Pharisees were, were mistaken in their approach because they thought, well, you know what, if we could just keep the heavy ones, then we'll be okay. We'll earn our way into God's favor. And yet God says, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the purpose of the law at all. And so they asked Jesus this question in order to trap him, in order to trick him. Because you see, by asking Jesus which one of these laws is most important, they're asking him to claim which one of God's laws has the most value. The problem with that is God's the one that demanded all the laws. And so they're, 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 they're making Jesus choose which one of these laws did God deem most important. Well, God deemed them all important. Or he wouldn't have given it, right? And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Jesus to say, this law is more important than these laws. And by doing so, they could claim that Jesus was annulling or neglecting all the other laws. But Jesus' reply is brilliant. Look what he says. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And other texts says even Jesus goes on to say, with all of your strength. Jesus is, is making sure that, that first and foremost we love God. Now, where does he get this answer? Where does he get this quote? This is actually a quote that Jesus gave from the law. This quote is called the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can turn over there. We're not, it's not, I don't think it's going to be on the on the screens this morning, but I do want to read uh, this text because it's, it's amazing. This whole section of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and what Jesus speaks is from Deuteronomy 6, 5. You can write that in your notes. You can go look it up later. But this is, this is what, what Moses says. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, so that you may fear the Lord your God, 
you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. And then verse 4, he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And verse 5 is what Jesus quotes. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on a sign on your hand and you shall place them in frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So what Moses is saying is how important it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus quotes that when the Pharisees ask him, what is the greatest commandment? Now what's fascinating about this is that the religious leaders already knew this. They already knew that to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest commandment. Why, why, do, we, why do I say that? Because every devout Orthodox Jew would recite that text, Deuteronomy 6, 5, every single day. They would recite that text. They would take that text and place it in mezuzahs, which were, were small little wooden boxes that the Jewish families would place in the doorframe uh, uh, of their homes, and every time they would walk in their home, they would take their fingers and they would touch their lips to the mezuzah, which, it, which was in, inside of there, encased in there, was this text to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why did they do that? It was a reminder that every time they walked into their home and every time they walked out of their home, they were to love the Lord your, their God with everything that they have. So they knew this was the text. This was the text that they placed in the phylacteries that, that they would wear uh, for the morning prayer. So the Jews already made this their number one commandment. And so the, Jesus knows this, and he, and, he, and, he, and he tells them to love the Lord your God. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to take all 613 laws, this is the brilliance of Jesus' answer. If you take every single law in the Old Testament, you can take them and point them to either loving God or loving others. Every single law. You can say, well, this law applies to loving God. This law applies to loving others. That law applies to loving God. That law applies to loving others. Every single law you can do that with, all 613. So Jesus' answer is incredibly brilliant. And the Shema, this text, is the heartbeat of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is is really Moses' final sermon to the nation of Israel. And it's a long sermon, much longer than what I'll preach today, but it's a long, long sermon. The entire book is really, Moses has gathered the people, and he's preaching to them, and he's teaching them the importance of following God, the importance of obeying God's law, the importance of doing what God has told them and called them to do. Now, what you have to keep in mind is, that all the Israelites that had escaped Egypt are now dead when Moses delivers this sermon. They died in the wilderness. They died in that 40 years of wondering, why did they die? Because they failed to trust God. 
They failed to believe his promises. They failed to follow what he told them to do. And so Moses is addressing this group of people that were either children, really young children, or not yet born when the Israelites fled Egypt. And he's telling them we must learn from our mistakes. We have to learn from our our mistakes. We have to learn from the past. So his sermon begins with this history lesson. And Moses begins to remind them that God is the creator of heaven and earth. That, 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 that God is a covenant God who has a covenant relationship with his people. He reminds them that God is a personal God who knows them, who speaks to them, who listens to them, who acts, for the, who acts on their behalf. Therefore, what Moses' conclusion is, is you must worship God. You must love God. That's the conclusion that Moses comes to in his sermon. And so what Moses and what Jesus are saying is this. That we are to love God with all of our faculties. We are to love God with every ounce of our being. But where does authentic love come from? Authentic love for God starts with God-oriented affections. With God-oriented desires. With God-oriented thoughts. And then those desires, affections, and thoughts begin to penetrate our behavior and our speech in every single area of our lives. See, as we love God, that love for God begins to penetrate and work its way through every area of our lives. Now, Jesus could have easily said, our first and foremost duty is to serve God or to obey God. Or even to fear God. Or to worship God. But he didn't. He said to love God. Why? Why did Jesus make this the number one uh, commandment? Why did Moses put such an emphasis on loving God? And here's the reason. Because whoever serves God must first love God. Whoever obeys God must first love God. Whoever worships God, whoever fears God must first love God. And it is our love for God that drives all those other things. It is our love for God that drives our obedience. It is our love for God that drives our service. It is our love for God that drives our worship. And we need to grasp this and understand this because in addition to loving God, or in the way that we love God, in order to love God, we must know God. In order to love Him, we have to know Him. If we don't know anything about God, If we don't know anything about him, there's nothing in our minds and our souls and our hearts to awaken a love for him. If we don't truly listen to him and know him and and grow in our relationship with him, we're we're not going to have this love awakened in us. If love does not come from knowing God, there's no point in calling it love at all. So we have to know him. How do we get to know him? Through scripture, through his word. By opening this book, reading and praying and studying and, and, and diving in to his word. Because what happens? When we read his word, we get to know who he is. We get to know what he's like. We get to know what he's about. 
We learn in Scripture that God is the creator of all humanity in the universe. We learn that he's the sustainer of all that he has made. We learn that he's a God of wisdom, of righteousness, of power. We learn that he's a God of love and compassion and grace and mercy. We learn that, he, we learn that he's a person and not a force, that we can be known by him, then, that we can know him as a father, that we can, we, can, we can understand and know and grasp who this God is. But the only way we can do that is through studying and reading and knowing his word. That's why it's so important, church, that we get into his word. Because why? Because we love him with all that we are because of all that he is. We love God with all that we are because of all that he is. And the way we discover all that he is is through his word. Which is why, church, that one of the things that, that, that we value as a church is expository preaching. And what does that mean? That means one of the things that we'll do vast majority of the time, uh, 90, 90% of the time, we will take a text of Scripture and we will walk through it. And we'll understand the context of it. We'll get to understand the depth of it. Why? Because in order to truly grasp his words, we can't just go and pick verses out. We have to dig into what he's saying. That's why we spent this entire year in the Gospel of Mark. Up until, up until just the last several weeks, we, we've been focused on the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up the Gospel of Mark in January. And we're going to take it from January all the way to Easter. We're going to finish the last week of Jesus' life. Mark 11 through Mark 16 is the final week of Jesus' life. Well, that's what we're going to walk through beginning in January all the way up to Easter. Why do we do that? Why do we focus so much on expository preaching? Why do we focus? Because here's what happens. When we get to grasp what his word intended to teach us, we get to know him more. And as we know him more, we then are able to love him. But there's a secondary reason we do that, church. And that is this. That my hope and my prayer when we walk through passages of Scripture is that you will learn how to study Scripture for yourself. That you will learn how to open God's Word and read it for yourself. Because the best approach to reading God's Word is to take a book of the Bible and just say, I'm going to dig into this book of the Bible. That's the, that's the, most, that's the healthiest way and approach to reading God's Word. Probably the least healthy is to go this. Yeah, I don't even understand those words. It's just a bunch of names. That's the least healthy way of, of studying Scripture. So what, what part of my hope and prayer is as we walk through books of the Bible together is that you begin to learn and to grow and to understand how to study God's Word for yourself. That's part of why we do expository preaching is to equip you. And so back to, back to this idea of loving God. Jesus demands, He commands that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what that means is that with every capacity of our being, that we express the fullness of our, our, of our affection for God. And with every ounce of our being, we express the fullness of the ways that we treasure God. What is your greatest treasure? Is it God? Is it Jesus? It should be because Jesus leaves no other room for divided affection or divided allegiance. He doesn't leave any room for that. 
He's saying that you, can't, you and I can't half-heartedly love God and claim to actually love God. Because what did he say? Love the Lord your God with what? A portion of your heart? All. All of your heart. All of your soul. All of your mind. All of your strength. Not portions, not little bits, but all of it. Listen to what he said. Jesus said in Matthew 10. He says, whoever... This is, a, this is a tough text, but it goes along with this idea of loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, whoever does not, or who, excuse me, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's a pretty tough text, isn't it? What is Jesus meaning? What is he saying? He's saying the nature of this kind of love for God is so deep and so powerful that it overwhelms our love for even our parents and our children. He's saying this type of love for God is so significant is so deep and so intimate that it surpasses our love and our affection for our own family, for our own friends. Think about it. Children are our treasure, aren't they? Children are, if you're a parent, you grasp this. You know, your children are precious to you. I mean, most days. But your children are precious to you. Your children are your treasure. Our parents Scripture teaches are to be respected and to be honored. So what is Jesus saying? That our love for him, our love for God, means that God is our greatest treasure. And that God deserves a higher honor and respect than anyone else. So in these two texts, we have a powerful commandments and, and, and life-transforming commandments that, that really teach us that we are to love God to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love God and love Jesus more than anything or anyone in this world. Why is this such a big deal? Because the reality is you can't have one without the other. You can't say, well, I love God, but I don't care about Jesus. You just can't do that. But yet there are religions that do. They say, oh, well, we worship the one true God. And Jesus was just a prophet. And Jesus was just a good man. And so what Jesus is saying in this text and what he's showing us is that you can't have one without the other. That our love for God is a litmus test for our love for Jesus. And our love for Jesus is a litmus test for our love for God. They go hand in hand. You, to truly love God is to, tr to truly love God the Father is to truly love God the Son. That's what Jesus is showing us. That's what he's teaching us. And the reality is that this kind of love is not natural for us, is it? Like, it's not natural for us as parents to put anything above our children. Like, we would give our very lives for our kids. And yet, this, Jesus is showing that our love for him far surpasses even our love for our own kids. Well, how do we get that type of love? Here's the beauty of it. It is a gift from God. 
You see, when God redeems us, when we, when we receive his forgiveness, when we receive his grace, when, he, when, we, when we become children of God through, our, through placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what happens is God gives us a new nature. God transforms our heart. And remember, God is love, and so he puts his love within us through the power of the Holy Spirit that then enables us to love him above all others. Because it doesn't come natural to us. It is a gift that we've been given. And Jesus taught this principle at a dinner party one, one evening. We're not going to look at it. We don't have time to look at the text, but I do want to tell you the story. There was a story of a Pharisee in the Gospels who invited Jesus over uh, for dinner. Now, this Pharisee had no affection for Jesus. He had no love for Jesus. Like all the Pharisees, he was trying to trap Jesus. And so what he does, he invites him over. And when Jesus arrived... He didn't do any of the customary things when you would invite a guest into your home in those days. Back in those days, if you invited a guest over, you would wash their feet. Or one of your servants would. You would kiss them on the cheek as a, as a greeting, of a, as a welcome. Well, this Pharisee did none of that. He didn't do anything to show affection for Jesus. He didn't do anything to show love for Jesus. And then suddenly, this woman of the street, this prostitute shows up. And she comes and she walks in and she kneels over Jesus' bare feet weeping. Tears pouring down her face. Tears falling on Jesus' dirty feet. And she begins to wash his feet with her hair. Well, as you can imagine, this was incredibly provocative. And the Pharisee was so upset, so bent out of shape, he says, Jesus, if you were a prophet... If you were who you claim to be, you would know that this woman is a sinner. So what does Jesus do? He tells a story. He says, let me ask you a question. He goes, let's say that there are two men, two debtors. One owes $5,000, one owes five bucks. Both of them are forgiven. Who's going to love the one that forgave them more? Well, the Pharisee goes, well, I guess the one with the larger debt. And he goes, you're absolutely right. And then Jesus said to the Pharisee, when I came in, you didn't kiss me. You didn't wash my feet, but she has wept over my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears. She has wiped them with her hair. Why? Because she has been forgiven much. Now, why do I share that story? Because love for God the kind of love for God that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 6, the kind of love for God that Jesus talked about in Matthew 22, only comes when you and I are stunned or shocked by the love that God has for us. The only way we can develop that type of love for God is when we are overwhelmed by the love that God has for us, when we look at the beauty of what Jesus has done for us on the cross through his redemption, the fact that he would die for us even though we didn't deserve it, the fact that he would take our sins upon himself even though there's no merit in and of ourselves, when we get overwhelmed by that, when we see the beauty of that, there is no other response than to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to be overwhelmed by it. We cannot take it for granted. But here's what happens. When we truly grasp and when we're truly gripped by the love that Jesus has for us, we will begin to taste 
and see that the Lord is good. We will begin to be, uh, be so enamored with Jesus and we will begin to treasure Jesus. We will begin to delight in Jesus. We will begin to be satisfied in Jesus above all things. And when we do, we, we are truly loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, our love for Jesus is awakened when we understand and when we grasp the result of our sin and how it separates us from God and how God would not let us alone and he pursues us and chases after us and redeems us. When we grasp that, church, then our love for Jesus and our love for God is awakened. See, no doubt, this type of love for God will produce obedience to Jesus. But keep in mind that it is our love for Jesus that drives our obedience to Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus said in John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Notice it doesn't say that, that, that we, we, we earn his, his, his love for us. No, it says that if we love him, the proof of our love for him is by keeping his commands. And this is so important because loving Jesus is not a matter of doing things. See, I think there, there's something with it deep within the human nature that we just want to earn it, right? Like we want to earn good grades in school. We want to earn the promotion at work. We were talking with our kids last night about how, you know, that... The, the, in our, in our family, they have to earn things. They have to get jobs. And they have to work. We, it's just not about handout after handout after handout. And, and one, of our, one of our kids was like, we appreciate, I appreciate the fact that not everything's just handed to us. That we actually have to go and we have to earn and we have to work. And because it's teaching me responsibility as I get older. Which I'm like, that's fantastic. But yet there's something within our human nature that, that carries that into our spiritual life, doesn't it? That may, maybe I can just earn favor with God. Maybe if I do some things, then I can earn God's favor. Here's what, here's what you need to understand. That loving God is not about doing, it's about delighting. Loving God is about delighting in Jesus, our Savior. Loving God is about delighting in who He is and what He has done for us. Jesus says doing things, keeping His word, is the result of our delighting. So the more we delight in Jesus, the more we love Jesus, the more we will do what he tells us to do. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commands. But I want you to check out this last text in John 15, beginning of verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me. So this is Jesus talking. This is the passage in John 15 where he talks about the vine and the branches and how we are, we are to be connected to him. We are to be uh, uh, that apart from him we can do nothing. And then he gets down to this text in, ver in, in verse 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. And then what does he say? Abide in my love. So we abide in his love. Because he loves us, we abide in his love. But then look what he says in verse 10. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, delighting in Jesus is abiding in Jesus. Loving God is abiding in God. 
this, this, this produces within us this strong feelings of admiration for his attributes. His, it, it's the enduring enjoyment of his fellowship. This is what this love looks like. It's the undying attraction to his presence. It's warm affection for his kinship. It is strong gratitude because he loved us before we loved him. And Jesus reminds us that these emotions, this love for him, is what he meant when he referred to our being worthy of him. Or not being worthy of him. See, loving Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength makes us worthy of Jesus. Now, I don't mean it in the sense that we earn it, that we deserve it. But what it means is that we have placed our, the right worth upon Jesus. Remember, we talked last week about worship is just worth-ship. And so when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, we are simply giving Jesus what he already deserves. And that is our undying devotion. That is our unwavering love. And Jesus demands that we love him in that way Why? Because he's infinitely worthy. Because he deserves every bit of it. And for us to love him in that way is for us to enjoy his glory and his presence and his love and his care for us. Church, let's learn to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let our enjoyment and let our affection be for Jesus above all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, first and foremost, your love for us. Because God, apart from your love for us, we don't have the capacity to love you the way that we should. We don't have the capacity to to even love anything the way that we should, God. We... Our love comes from you. You are love. And because you first loved us, we are then able to love you. Just that fact and the idea and the thought of loving you is truly a gift from you. Lord, I pray that you help us to set our hearts and our affections and our desires and our dreams. Help us to place them and focus them on you on loving you for who you are. Jesus, you didn't give us any room for undivided affection. You didn't give us any room for undivided love. And I pray that you would develop in me and in us an unwavering, wholehearted devotion and commitment to you. If anyone here this morning would say, you know what, Eric, I've never really placed my trust in Jesus. I've never really loved Jesus in that way. And today can be the day you can simply do so by faith. By simply saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength. Jesus, I love the fact that you died on the cross for me. That you loved me enough to redeem me. And today, I want to place my faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray for anyone this morning that has never placed their trust and faith in you, that they would do so today. That today would be the day that they surrender their lives to you. 
for those of us who are Christ followers. We live in a world that throws tons and tons of distractions at us. Things come at us day by day, moment by moment, that want to pull us away from our love for God. And perhaps today you need to reset that. Perhaps today you need to re-surrender, re-commit your love to Jesus. And I just encourage you to do so today as well. So Father, we worship you, we exalt you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.